Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Hi, Ilona Thompson here with Palate Exposure, and I'm beaming from ear to ear. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice because I am with one of my favorite people on planet Earth, not just in the winemaking world, Daniel Dow. Thank you, Ilona. He's a giant in thought and deed. And I'm here, it's in the middle of production, in the middle of harvest, really exciting time, like goosebumps exciting. And I have a million questions, but we'll start with the most relevant here and present. You know, California has been experiencing horrible heart fire season. And I know a lot of you are wondering what it does to the harvest, to the crop this year, what, what's happening. And he's the person to ask those questions. Well, thank you, Lona. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, California has seen, especially Northern California, has seen, I believe, three vintages of the last four dealing with fires. Um, and also one year of earthquake. So I feel bad for our northern neighbors uh, who have had to endure a lot of these tribulations and trials. Um, here we've been very fortunate. Uh, besides 2016, when we had a little bit of, a, of, a, of fires close to us, uh, so far we've managed, you know, knock on wood, to dodge the bullet. Uh, this year was a challenging one. Um, not as much for the fires because the fires stayed away from us. Mm -hmm. uh, there were a couple small fires that uh, were basically taken care of within a couple of days. We did get a little bit of uh, haze uh, and smoke very little from the uh, Carmel uh, Valley uh, fire, from, sorry, from the Big Sur fire. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously, you know, that created a little bit of a haze, but it was, uh, you know, when ash travels more than 24 hours, it doesn't typically create a problem for smoke taint. That's at least, uh, you can't say 100% it won't, but most of the time it does not. Uh, there was only one day of very fine ash, clearly it did not stick around. Uh, we've conducted tests throughout the entire vineyard, uh, zero smoke taint, zero smoke problems. Uh, we're doing even more testings in the wines after they're fermented, but we are very optimistic that we have not had any damage from the fire so far. That is so great to hear. So your harvest is going on as usual, right? Is it earlier this year? Is any it's modifications? A bit, it's a little bit earlier this year. Uh, we had, you know, it's a little bit of a drought year. Mm -hmm. So to give an example, this year we, we got about uh, 16 inches of rain, which is on the low side for us. Mm -hmm. uh, last year was close to 40 inches of rain. Wow. So a huge drastic difference between difference, the previous yeah. year and this year. Uh, probably the biggest challenge for this year uh, was the heat waves. Mm. Uh, to give maybe, if, if I can refresh your memory, but in 2017, uh, a severe heat wave hit California. They actually, not just California, but the entire west coast of the United States. Uh, mm -hmm. The Fisherman's Wharf, which is uh, you know known for being very cold in the summer, reached 106 degrees in 2017. Uh, most vineyards received severe damage out of the heat waves, and you know in our case, because we dry farm and we weren't ready to deal with such an interesting heat wave that was very drastic, uh, we lost 25% of our crop in 2017. So I set out on a, uh, on a mission to try to make sure that this never happens again. So the last three years, I've created a special protocol that I've used in the vineyard uh, to help us uh, basically dodge any bullets of heat spikes, which are very likely to continue happening in the future. Um, and the good news is the protocol worked. There was zero damage in the entire two heat waves that hit us, both of them each one of them that hit us this year was actually longer and hotter than 2017. And yet, we got zero damage. I'll be glad to tell you how we did that. I don't mind sharing that information. 
It's a three-pronged approach that I took to dealing with those heat spikes. The first one is we use a special product called shade cloth. It's a shade cloth that goes on the side of the grapes and it basically blocks 40% or so of the UV rays. Okay? So we do that every year regardless. But what I noticed in 2017 is some blocks are not quite positioned, you know, southern exposure. So what would happen is that the sun would get them on the other side where the shade cloth was not and we would lose, that's why really where we got hurt quite a bit. So this year, as soon as the heat wave, we saw that it was coming, we put double shade cloth on basically every block that was, you know, an iffy block in terms of will it make it in terms of, uh, in terms of raisining and, and, and puckering and dehydration, etc. Uh, so that's one prong. Uh, the second prong, and probably the most important one, is there's a new product uh, that we started using and uh, we actually did the trial with the company that brought it from Italy. Uh, in artists of the company and the product is called Blue Vitae and what it does is it's aimed at really activating the soil microorganism in the ground that leads to a much healthier vine, much stronger vines, thicker cane, more green canopy. Uh, it's like almost taking a multivitamin but it's not really a fertilizer. It actually relies on the vine using its own soil microorganism to really strengthen the vines. And, and the idea is very simple. Uh, if you take a person that's very very well fit uh, and they really work out a lot and they're in great shape and you stick them in the Mojave Desert, right? At 140 degrees or whatever hot it gets there uh, Chances are they're gonna last longer than the person who is out of shape, you know, frail has some underlying conditions, right? They're not gonna last as long. So strengthening the vine is gonna overall allow the vine to be able to sustain these these dangerous heat spikes almost on a yearly basis that's the idea behind using you know a product that activates the soil microorganism uh, by doing so we actually saw a difference of approximately five degrees cooler on the vines that we used the product on because we did the trial now for three years than on the vines where we didn't so on top of that the shade cloth will reduce the temperature another five to ten degrees depending on what color right now we're using black because black absorbs heat and therefore reduces temperature even further so the third, so that's the second prong of the protocol. The third prong of the protocol is even though we dry farm, you know, we don't do it for marketing reasons. We do it because our soils allow us to actually dry farm because these calcareous clay soils have the ability to contain moisture from the rainy season and feed it to the vine to basically allow it to survive. But no different than we are in Europe. In Europe, many, many places in Europe are not allowed to irrigate. But if there's a severe heat wave, they're allowed actually by law to irrigate. And we don't, we don't obviously have a law that prevents us from irrigating, but we have done the same thing. Only the way we did it is very interesting. We put moisture probes in the ground. And what we realized is that at night, the moisture gets replenished from the limestone subsoil. So the problem is only around one or two or in the afternoon between noon and say four o'clock, where it gets so dry that the heat dries up the root zone and that's when the grapes can dehydrate. So of course, what did we do? Instead of giving it gallons and gallons of water, which we don't need, we did microbursts of watering, only between 12 and four mostly, okay, to give some moisture into the ground while the heat is demanding it. And by doing so, I'm talking maybe a quarter gallon of water, doing it every two days so during the heat wave. That worked. So these, this three-pronged approach that I took in the vineyard uh, saved us this year, and the grapes have never looked that good. I mean, there is zero damage from two extensively long heat waves that lasted 12 days each, and one of them reached all the way to 108 degrees, which I've never seen on this mountain. So much more severe than 17. So 
How is that translating the quality of the wine? I'm sure you're going to ask that next. It's <laughs> actually incredible. I'm seeing some of the highest phenolics yet I've seen on this mountain. And the reason is very simple. We're mountain fruit and our skin tends to be very thick. Okay? So when you have these episodes of long heat spikes, it actually does us a favor because it melts the skin a little bit more because the grapes get hotter and therefore allows for better, better release of phenolics. So you'll see when we do a pump over next, the color is black. I mean, it just literally within two, three days after we put the wine in tank, the grapes in tank, the, the, the wine, the juice is already black. And then when we start fermenting, the phenolics levels that we're seeing are extremely high across the board, pretty much from every variety we worked with. So extremely happy about this vintage. It's turning out, even though 2020 has been a horrible year for most people in this world, uh, so many challenges, so many trials, so many tribulations, so many losses. I'm hoping that this uh, this vintage is going to help us finish, uh, you know, with a thumbs up that this year actually brought something really good to us. So there's your three-prong approach, innovation, sustainability, because water Correct. issues in California, and extraordinary product, because I've seen the color on Instagram. I can't wait to see it in person. If you guys are not following Dow Vineyards on Instagram, you're missing out. Some of the best feeds in the wine world I've ever seen, dynamic, gorgeous. And be sure to follow me as well personally because I post a lot of things as well. So Daniel.j.dow. Did you hear that, guys? Daniel.j.dow. D-A-O-U. Correct. Awesome stuff. Thank um, you. I hear that your barrel program got a lot more exciting this year as well. Yes. Tell us about that. Yes. So, you know, I, I wanted to create a, I want to say superior barrel, but really it was a superior barrel for us, for the mountain here. Uh, and why? Because our mountain here has arguably the highest phenolics I've ever measured than any bottle of Cabernet in the world. And I've measured over 600 of them. So because of that, you know, we restrict ourselves to using free run mostly. And we have no problem generating the tannins, uh, the tannin extraction that we're looking for. Uh, many winemakers like to use different kinds of oak because in many cases you don't have enough tannins. Mm -hmm. So you want the tannins to come from the oak to give it the structure it needs for, for basically aging very well and, and aging a long time. In our case, we have, I mean, we drain really early to make sure we don't have even higher tannins. So the last thing we want is more tannins. So when you age, when you cure a barrel, right, in the elements, the longer you cure it, the softer the tannins are, the more flavorful it becomes. Most barrels are cured between two and two and a half years on the market. I decided to create an experiment and cure a barrel for five years. So it's a very long time. So it actually takes nine years for a bottle of Solovaline or a bottle of patrimony to be made because it's five years for the barrel, one year in the vineyard, two years for the wine aging in the barrels, and one year in the bottle. So it's a nine year from beginning to end of the journey before the wine is out. And why did I do that? Because I wanted to make sure that the tannins were very soft. I didn't want tannins from the oak or very little, and I wanted to have more flavors. But I also found a very interesting uh, strain of French oak that in France we call Bois Rosé, or pink wood in English. And um, I have a, my, my dear friends in, in France, uh, the Canadel family, and Anna Jaillet as well, and Anna's married to Jacques Canadel, so they're one family. I remember visiting at their house, uh, I'm gonna say you know, 10 years ago or so, and they took me in the back uh, to see the tonnerie, the cooperage, and they had just harvested a lot of trees, and I noticed few of them were pink. And I said, I'm just, it's very interesting. I, I've been to many tonneries before, but I've never seen pink, w pink uh, trees. What are these? They said, well, they usually come from very old trees. They tend to have extra fine grain, 
which you want because extra fine grain releases kind of is made for longer aging so it releases all the flavors very very slowly so it integrates with the wine versus you know and non extra fine you know like fine or coarse grain or or just very fine but not extra fine so uh, I say what do you do with these uh, with these trees they say oh you know it's just not that many so we blend them with the rest I said I got a better idea I want you to we do a trial I want you to age them for me for five years and then I want to create my own toast for it the toast that I created is medium extra extra long so it's actually made toasted at very at lower temperature but for almost two hours so a long time to get the toast that I want we did trials after trials it took us about four or five years and now we have a program where you know basically we get our you know Bois Rosé barrels from France uh, but I took it a step further about three years ago I decided to take some of these staves and instead of curing them and aging them in Bordeaux or outside of Bordeaux where their tonnerie is I decided to cure them on our mountain here so uh, it'll be till next year before we make our first barrel from that mountain and I'm very excited to see what's going to happen because you know I want to have wines that have the purest expression of what grows on this fabulous mountain and for me you know we created our own yeast so that is from here that's native um, obviously the grapes are from here all the wines from the estates are naturally made wines we only use our native yeast and nutrition for the yeast to finish the fermentation but I want to take a step further and the step further is actually to age them in oak that actually was cured here not obviously harvested here because we don't have French oak here but cured here and we'll see what the results lead if we like them it'll be something we take to the next level and actually start curing more and more of our barrels here but uh, we'll be conducting this trial for the first time next year talk about taking innovation to the nth degree from soup to nuts this is extraordinary I can't wait to try the fresh wines from that barrel program thank you um, let's talk about the proverbial elephant in the room we of course are recording the time of COVID yep which puts a whole different emphasis on the consumer and as an immensely consumer-centric brand from day one um, I think you have some very wise things to say about it to share with our audience well I mean it you know I I, I think COVID definitely put a dent in the in you know a lot of people's uh, abilities to buy bottles of wine um, you know we have two kinds of wines we have wines that we only sell at the winery and through our club membership and we have wines that we sell predominantly, if not exclusively, in the wholesale market. Um, clearly, on the wholesale market, the on-premise part of the uh, of COVID, well, sorry, the online premise uh, uh, side of the business got affected quite a bit by COVID. Uh, people stopped going to restaurants. It's actually very sad to hear that about. Just heard the statistic that 30% of all the restaurants will not come back in business. So. Very, very heartbreaking. I, I know so many people put their livelihood and their life into starting a restaurant and uh, to have something uh, affect them so tragically uh, is very sad. Um, so obviously this side of the business for us got hurt quite a bit just because people are not serving wine, they're not even have, they don't even have restaurants that are open. Uh, the good news is that off-premise uh, made up for some of that because a lot of people were while they did not go to a restaurant to uh, to uh, you know order a bottle of wine they stayed home and cooked more or they ordered food to go from many restaurants that provided them and as, as a result of that uh, they often drank down wine so uh, we can't complain let's just say we're not obviously to the level where we would have liked to be this year with this COVID but uh, we're doing pretty well and, and I'm very pleased with so far the consumer adoption and how the support that we've received out in the industry out in the market has been tremendous um, 
you know, our, our members are very loyal. Uh, we haven't really seen a big drop into our members dropping out because of COVID. If anything, they're ordering more wine because they're spending more time at home and they're drinking more wine. Uh, our tasting room did shut down for two, three months and that did impact uh, financially quite a bit what we did. However, as of about, I believe three months ago or so, the, the tasting room reopened only outside. So we have outside seating by reservation only. Um, and we've been, uh, we've been going. People come visit uh, and they're enjoying the same experience uh, they would have uh, experienced otherwise, COVID or not. I just walked outside on your patio and the guests were so animated. I mean, you wouldn't know that it's pandemic. Everybody's face just spelled happiness. So that was Actually, really I, I said the exact same thing this weekend. I went out to meet uh, with somebody who was visiting. I walked around, I'm like, you'd never know we're in a pandemic. I mean, <laughs> people are out there drinking wine, eating, and enjoying life. Yeah, and you know, people got to live. Yeah. I think, uh, yes, human nature. Yeah. Obviously, take we're taking a lot of precaution. I mean, yes. all of our staff wears masks at all times. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the winery is required to wear a mask. We have sanitization stations everywhere. Uh, so we really, we keep the tables very far apart. Uh, if you're sitting on your table, you cannot, you don't have to wear a mask, but if you get up to go to anywhere, then you have to wear a mask. So we're following the guidelines given by the state and so far they're working very well. You have a vast portfolio of wines. There's been some new wines introduced recently, I understand. For those that are not familiar, can you walk us through it? Yeah, so we introduced a wine called Bodyguard mm -hmm. in the market. This is a tremendous wine especially for the price you know one of the things that my brother and i are very committed to is we call it approachable luxury uh, we're committed on making wines that way over deliver, over deliver on the price regardless of the price point i mean we make wines that start at 15 dollars and they go up to a thousand but we always our mentality is always regardless of the price point we want the consumer to know that they're getting something that is normally worth a lot more. So Bodyguard is really the essence of that. I mean, this is a wine that is a naturally weighed wine, so only native yeast and nutrition, no playing around, no adding you know, color, no adding sugar, no adding all these things. It's a dry wine, mm -hmm. very dry. It's on the, on the extra dry spectrum of dryness. Uh, it's made out of two grapes, Petit Verdot, Petit Syrah, and it's probably, phenolics-wise, in the 0.1 percentile worldwide of all the wines I measured. So a tremendous, tremendous concentration, but yet so supple flavors and really rich flavors, and very affordable. It's a wine that sells in the 30s, uh, depending on where you are in the country. Um, and it's aged at 50% new French oak, and it's 100% free run. We don't even use press for that wine. So impossible to find the quality of wine for that price point anywhere in the world. And, and we're proud of it. So we put it out on the market and it's really taken off. We introduced a rosé, as you know. Mm -hmm. uh, this was our first introduction of a rosé wholesale. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, growing up uh, in south of France, uh, I wanted to be true to tradition. I did not use saignet, uh, you know, did not cut down on, on quality or cut corners. This is a Provence, méthode Provençal rosé made. It's a, 95% Grenache Noir grapes and 5% Sauvignon Blanc. You know, in France, you know, it's often blended with either Sauvignon Blanc or Rôle, which is Vermontino. Uh, we call it Vermontino here. Mm -hmm. So uh, we blend it with Sauvignon Blanc. And the acceptance of this product in this market, I have to tell you, flabbergasted me. Flabbergasted me. I mean, this is the first time we ever released this rosé in the market. It is now the third best-selling rosé in California. Amazing. It, un incredible. I mean... The comments that we got out of it were incredible. People literally fell in love with this wine. And I'm proud of it because we did not cut corners. We stayed traditional to the core in terms of how we made this wine. And this is about 
a premium rosé from Provence like. I mean, grown wow. here on those beautiful soils that we have in Pastor Robles with a beautiful Mediterranean-like climate. Um, and uh, it, it was a huge success, so I can't complain. I think I have a bit of a guess as to why people are falling in love with the wine. Rosé is obviously a hot category and also quite ubiquitous. Let's face it, there's a lot of bad rosé in the marketplace as a result of the popular demand. And I know everything you make is going to be top-notch quality and people are craving that. Well, thank you. I, I agree. I think people want quality. And they want, you know, I don't think people mind. I think what this industry has shown us in the last, you know, 10 years or so, maybe even more, is that the, the consumer doesn't mind paying a little more money, but they want to have something that is a huge value. And that's really at the heart of why Dow is successful. Uh, you got a bottle of Soul of a Lion, Ilona. It sells for about $125 in the market, right? It drinks better, let's face it, and it gets better ratings. That 90% of the wines out there that sell for two to three times the price. That's right. So consumers are looking at this saying, wow, why would I want to spend three times the price when I can get a great, highly rated, superb bottle of wine that is available every year, every day for that price? I mean, club members pay even less money for it. They pay about less than $100. This is a, a huge bottle of wine. I mean, for the price, you're getting tremendous value. So what the industry has shown us is that people don't mind spending more but they want the value. And let me tell you where we learned that. You know, in 2008, when the market crashed, uh, a lot of those top wines that were selling for 40 or $50 in the market uh, got discounted because nobody was buying anything with the, with the huge you know, collapse of the economy in 2008. So they all went down to about $20. Well, all the consumers that were buying $10 and $15 bottle of wine, they saw these $20 bottle of wine thinking, wow, normally I can't afford them. They're selling for 40 or 50 bucks. I want to buy them. The problem is that they got used to this flavor. They got used to better bottle of wines mm. that drink like a $50 bottle of wine. So when the economy went back, well, all the wines that had discounted went back to $50 or more bottle of wine. The consumer didn't want to spend that. They wanted a $20 bottle of wine that drank like a $50 bottle of wine. That's where Dow filled the niche. It was a 2010 vintage. We introduced our discovery, Cabernet Sauvignon. And it's been a real wild success. I mean, this wine is a wine that receives ratings from almost every critic in the 90 to 93 range on a yearly basis. It sells for anywhere between 18 to $22, depending on where you are in the country. And um, it's been a tremendous success for us. And that's because we filled that niche where the consumers still want to get a bottle of wine that drinks like a $50 bottle of wine, but they don't want to spend 50 bucks. Well, it's fantastic that you recognize it and address it. Um, your wines are infinitely age-worthy. You know, your high-end ones probably would outlive me, I would think. Um, I'm pretty sure it would outlive all of us here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they're also delicious on release, which is, you know, um, something that's really difficult to achieve, um, to basically fuse both value propositions. And the question is, how do I do that, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's a common question that I get asked all the time. So. Uh, it's not an easy way to accomplish it, but uh, it's taken me about 10 years of research to accomplish that. And today I can say confidently that I can release wines that are drinkable today, but they yet can probably age for you know, 5 to 10 decades, maybe. Uh, and I'll explain to you how I do that. You see, what got me to figure out how to do that is actually making wine here. In the first year I made wine in 2010 on the mountain, on Dow Mountain, I got trashed. I mean, I had never worked with grapes that had such high phenolics. So out of 26 acres I had planted, only 500 cases actually deemed to be worthy to be drinkable. 
So the rest I couldn't even use with my hiring one. Clearly I wouldn't have survived making 500 cases out of 26 acres. So what I quickly realized is I needed to find a way to know, okay, how to balance out the tenants. So now let's talk about that a little bit. So when the grapes arrive, right, and they get crushed and they go to a tank, right, at some point the process of fermentation, right, starts. And the process of fermentation, you basically have yeast that is consuming the sugar and turning it into alcohol, correct? Okay. Mm -hmm. As soon as that process of fermentation starts, what happens? Tannins start being generated. So most winemakers, what they do is they try to taste while the wine is fermenting, but the reality of it is it's impossible to taste while the wine is fermenting. And I'll tell you why. For one reason is you have carbonic acid into the wine, and we're going to taste it right now when we do a pump over and we'll let you taste it. You'll see it's very hard to taste it because you've got carbonic acid everywhere, which affects basically how the acidity shows. Two, you've got a gazillion grams of residual sugars. So it's like taking a wine and putting with it, you know, a, a, a cup of sugars, sugar and trying to decide if the wine tastes good or not. It's impossible. Okay. And three, let's not forget it's must. So it's going to be grippy, it's going to be, you know, it's going to have, it could have some hydrogen sulfides too, which could really impact the flavors or anything else. So, um, so what I did is I, I went out and I started measuring phenolics out of wines from all over the world. Wines that I drink, wines that I made, and I ended up looking at the phenolics level and realizing where it is that I liked the wines best. Mm -hmm. in terms of tannin extractions, but also in terms of mouthfeel. So when you measure phenolics, you can actually, you know, there's a formula, if you're using the Adams assay, Adams Harbison assay, where you take the tannin levels and you divide them by the IRPs, which are the overall phenols in the, into the grapes. And the reason you do that is because the tannins are part of the IRP. So you're trying to see the percentage ratio of what is basically the tannin part of the overall phenolics. And what I notice is anytime you start growing much higher than 50%, the wine gets too grippy and it needs time because it was overly extracted. I also notice that when you start reaching certain tannin levels, say over 1500, the wines start getting a little bit too grippy. If you get to 2000, the wine is almost undrinkable and you need to lay down 10 years. Now I gotta tell you, the first year I made wine here, I was having some levels of tannin, almost at 3000 parts of tannins. So it would have made the wine undrinkable. So now why did I do all that? Because then I created an algorithm because clearly I cannot taste while I'm creating the wine and fermenting it. But I know what the end result needs to be, right? So what I do is I actually measure phenolics two to three times a day. And I have an algorithm that looks at all these bunch of conditions. There's probably over seven or eight conditions that I created a formula out of that says, if you basically have this many tannins, this many RRPs, most and a few other things, of course, most likely you need to drain right now. So by doing that, I know how to extract enough tannins to make the wines at bottling approachable upon release. But yet, make no mistake about it, they probably have some of the highest levels on earth for tannins for Cabernet Sauvignon, and I have the results I can show them to you. So that, the tannins what hold the wines to allow it to age very well. See, a lot of people get mistaken about that. If you're dealing with white wine, which has no tannins, in 99% of the cases, right? I think there's a place in Italy that ferments you know, Chardonnay, I think, on, on tannins. I've tasted it. Actually, it tastes a little very different. But white wines don't have tannins. Why? Because they don't get fermented on skin. So you extract the juice, and then you ferment the juice alone, right? So, and Pinots, Pinot Noir, overall tend to have much lower tannins. We're talking in the, 
zero to maybe 200 to 250 parts per minute of tandem versus Cabernet, which could be at 1,000 to 1,500. So because of that, Pinot and white wine, especially white wine, the ageability factor is related directly to your acidity and your pH. So a white wine that's very acidic, low pH, high acid, like a Riesling, is going to age 40, 50 years, right? Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've had these wines because the acidity keeps it in check. For Pinot Noir, plays a similar role, not as much as white wine, but clearly, you know, if you, if, if you, if you are at 3.6, 3.5 pH, for instance, when it comes to Pinot Noir, you're going to age a lot longer than a 3.8 probably. Why? Because there's only a little bit of tannins in the Pinot, there's not a lot. For Cabernet Sauvignon and for Bordeaux varieties, acidity and pH play almost no roles. I don't want to say none, but almost none. Why? Because it is the tannin structure that holds the wine together. Here's another good thing for you. How did Robert Parker become famous? I'll tell you how. It was in 1982. That's the vintage in Bordeaux that made him famous. How? Well, he tasted the wines. It was a California-like vintage. It was a warm vintage. The wines tasted more like a California wine. They had higher phenolics, right? Mm -hmm. They had ripe tannins. They had more color. And let's face it, they were more approachable upon release, right? Because they actually ripened on the vines. They didn't need to be ripened on the bottle, okay? So every critic made a mistake. It's a well-known, you know, well-known uh, uh, thing. Every critic when I tasted the, the wines from 1982, it said, soft wines, soft year, don't age, drink immediately. They were wrong. Why? Because they confused ripe tannins with amount of tannins. And the reality of it is, in warmer years, you have higher phenolics. So you actually have more tannins, but you have them ripe. Robert Parker, and a new kid on the block, nobody knew him back then, besides a small newsletter he had in the United States, tasted the wines and said, you guys are all wrong. Okay? These wines are going to age longer than all the others because while the tannins are ripe, this, this has probably more tannins. He didn't even measure phenolics. He could tell with his palate. History tells us he was right. 1982s are still drinking great today and probably will drink good another 20 years. So when it comes to Cabernet, tannin extraction is extremely important. You don't want to overdo it but you don't want to underdo it. So it's like a bell curve, and you have to find your sweet spot. And for me, that's what my algorithm does. It allows me to find my sweet spot during the fermentation as to make sure that I don't under-extract so that the wine doesn't age in a long time, or over-extract where the wine will be too grippy and not enjoyable for years before it's bottled, after it's bottled. You've isolated an extraordinarily powerful dynamic. Um, is there papers about it? Are you getting calls daily from Bordeaux for Scro Chateaus? Uh, I have some friends in Bordeaux that ask me about it, uh, but you remember that there is no textbook that tells you what is right. This is purely based on my palate, and you know, I've had a few conversations with people and they go, so you're making wine by numbers. I said, no, I'm not making wine by numbers. I'm making wine based on my palate. However, I cannot taste while the wine is fermenting, so I have to rely on something, and I found the closest thing to my palate, which is where my palate should be, and I'm actually able to measure it, so I know where my palate's going to be when the wine is done. Well, your palate essentially aligns with a lot of consumers. There's a lot of fans of the brand that are so grateful that they're able to drink so well early and often. Yes, and, and that is something that's been our signature literally from day one. Uh, all these wines are approachable today, but let me tell you, make no mistake about it. Seven to ten years later, oh my gosh, these wines evolve into something so beautiful. You know, uh, Fred Dame, uh, who's on our team, uh, said something very interesting. Uh, when, I first, uh, when he first joined us. And I'd forgotten what he said, I'll tell you the story. He said, Daniel, your wines are very interesting. He goes, the first five to seven years, you taste the baby fat. He goes, but after that, it's like a different wine. 
this mineral, you taste the earth, because you know we have the same soils as Europe, pretty much. Sure. Well, I had forgotten about that, and last year I was at the uh, Belmont Hotel in Santa Barbara, and they have every vintage of soil of line and patrimony. Mm. And uh, so I ordered a bottle of 2013 soil of line. And uh, I didn't watch the somebody pour it, he just poured a glass, I think it was, may have been in the bathroom, I came back, I started drinking the wine, and I thought to myself, this is not my wine. I'm like, it doesn't taste like anything I remember from 2013. That's Soul of a Lion. So I asked uh, somebody to show me the bottle. It was indeed our bottle. And then I remember what Fred had said. The wine was about seven years old or six years old. And the wine was so transformed. I felt like I was drinking an old world wine that had minerality and earthiness just come out of everywhere. And the wine was so complex. And I loved that. I mean, th those are the nuances I look for in a bottle of Cabernet after it ages. So uh, it'll be exciting to see these wines age, you know, two, three, four decades. Uh, I probably won't be here in many decades, but my kids maybe will taste them. Who knows, you know? But uh, I think they will definitely uh, be very, very long uh, age worthy. How exciting it is to make a multi-generational wine like that. Um, in that same vein, what are you working on? Are there new things in the works that we should be keeping an eye on? Yes, uh, we're very excited to start building the Patrimony Winery. Mm -hmm. Patrimony, as you know, has been a brand that I created with my brother about uh, now in 2013. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the reviews have been just amazing. There's a three-year list, waiting list to get this wine. And, and the wine has just been incredibly well received. We just had Eric Johnson join our team as director for Patrimony. Eric was the head sommelier at French Laundry for many years, a uh, big believer in the wine. Uh, the wine is, is making a lot of waves right now. Uh, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the patrimony wines called Cave de Lyon, which is a blend of Cabernet and Cabernet Franc, um, got a huge review by one advocate. Uh, European distributors contacted us and they asked us if they could get an allocation. We gave them one. They sold it all in like one or email and we're talking across Europe. Uh, very surprising to see that. Uh, we sent them a sample of the barrel. So uh, I think a third of the production is already gone and we didn't even offer it. I mean, it was just like, we'll give an allocation. So the wine has been extremely well received. And this is my next, uh, this is really our legacy, my brother and I's legacy. Uh, actually, matter of fact, if you look at the new bottle, uh, you'll see Gorgeous. in Latin, and it's, it's inscribed Legatum Nostrum, which is our legacy. Uh, this, is the, this is the label for Cabo de Lyon. So this is our Daddy. family crest. So, you know, we're excited about this project, so hopefully we can break ground next year to start building the winery. We purchased 260 acres adjacent to Down Mountain, so it's part of Down Mountain now, which will be dedicated for patrimony. And obviously patrimony gets to pull from the best blocks on that mountain, because it is one mountain. Uh, so very exciting projects. Uh, the project is something that uh, I hope that my children will join me as well. My daughter is finishing her master's in uh, Bordeaux. And she will be coming back next year to hopefully uh, work with Patrimony with me and some of the other wines. And my son uh, is finishing his degree in the next couple of years and hopefully he'll join in as well so we can all uh, make wine together. Wow, so in the family, it's so important for family business. Yes. And you know, the next generation join. Correct, you know, we're family owned, obviously and operated, but we're multi-generational as well. Wow, um, so much intense, beautiful intel that we just gleaned. So last but not least, um, I know people that are listening are really excited about maybe partaking in your library selections as well as current releases. Do you have some something to offer? 
So unfortunately, we're very limited for the 13th, 14th, and 15th vintage of patrimony mm -hmm. because you know the production is so small and we didn't keep enough, unfortunately. So those, unfortunately, are not available. Uh, but Soul of a Lion, we could probably make some pa some uh, library available back to 2012. Mm -hmm. uh, so we do have some of those. Exciting. And then Patrimony, we definitely have the 16 that we can make available as well. I just think given um, what we discussed as far as the age-worthy factor, I know people are probably salivating over the opportunity to put a little away and then follow the trajectory. I agree. Um, I think the best way to really taste these wines is to actually go back 7 to 10 years and actually taste them and uh, you would be shocked about the quality. Uh, you know, I've done so much uh, when it comes to wine, the winemaking part that you won't realize it until the wine is aged a long time. So for instance, color. The color, all color is not equal. Right? Color is, the term for it is anthocyanin. Uh, that's what comes from the red pigmentation of the skin. Well, unless you know what you're doing in the cellar and you understand phenolics readings, and few tricks up my sleeve that I'm not going to discuss here. <laughs> what will happen is you will have a lot of color at bottling, but it will precipitate within a year or two by 50%. Wow. Uh, if you buy a bottle of our wine, if you drink a bottle of our wine that's even 10 years old, the color hasn't changed. And that's the technique that I've come up with that really allows to bind a anthocyanin molecule to a tannin molecule, therefore making it stable. And there are so many different trials that I've done on a yearly basis over the last 10 years. And I've got a few tricks that really bind this, this, accelerate this mechanism so well that there is so much stable color in each wine that it will not precipitate even with 10 years of age. Wow. There you heard it, you guys, from the man himself. Every time I'm around him, I feel smarter. I know you will too. And there's much more to come. I hope to sit down with him again and um, fill you guys in on everything you should know and care about in the wine world. Thank you, Elena. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Palette Exposure featuring Elona Thompson. We'll see you again next week.